Professor Brooks, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. It's great to be here. What is structural violence? What do we mean by that? Hmm. So if I were to think about structural violence in lay terms, as a professor, civil rights lawyer, but as a human being living in a society in which there's a great deal of violence, violence in our streets, violence in our homes, violence behind bars. But there's a violence that goes beyond a simple definition of interpersonal violence, violence between people that we can see, that we can be revolted by, that we can be afraid of. There's a form of violence that is less visible as threatening, as harmful, though it is behind closed doors often in terms of visibility, behind closed doors psychologically, but it is deeply affecting and impactful. And that is what we call structural violence. And what we mean by that is the violence of poverty, right? So when we see children, as Dr. King put it, locked in airtight cages of poverty, suffocating literally under the conditions of violence being wrought upon their spirit, upon their bodies. So it would be the difference between one child suffering from being shot on the street corner and many children witnessing that violence, being affected by stories of that violence, missing school as a consequence of that violence, being traumatized by that violence, growing up in an environment, in a community, in a neighborhood in which violence affects them in terms of their spirits, their minds, their hearts, and as scientists tell us, even at a genetic level. So it's a violence that's more pervasive, more widespread, and ultimately more impactful. How can a policy in itself be violent? So let's look at the example of children living in segregated communities. And what we mean by segregated, it's not merely a matter of homogeneity with respect to pigmentation, the same coloration of neighbors and community residents, but a segregation in terms of class, a segregation in terms of education, a segregation in terms of job opportunities, a segregation in terms of economic horizons. So in other words, when poor people are confined and constrained in communities of limited opportunity, limited prospects, limited mobility, limited housing and employment as a matter of policy, right? So in other words, prior to the Fair Housing Act, of 1968 passed within days of Dr. King's assassination, it was in fact federally legal to segregate people based upon race, based upon ethnicity, based upon religion, all manner of social definitions that define people as second-class citizens. And so when we segregate families, communities, and children in poor communities, depriving them of opportunity, there's a violence visited upon them. And what we mean by that is the sociologist, William Julius Wilson, talked about the geography of crime, which is to say any group living in communities where job prospects are limited, where they are racially or ethnically confined, the crime rate goes up. 
the violence goes up, whether it be African-Americans, whether it be Latinos, whether it be Jews, whether it be any immigrant or migrant group, if they are confined according to geography, race, and ethnicity, violence goes up. But it's not only the physical violence between people, it's the violence visited upon a community, a neighborhood, a society, and certainly its children. Policy can be as deadly, as lethal, as violent as a cudgel, as a gun, as a knife, as a weapon. And so policy really is a matter of violence, but also a matter of nonviolence, which is to say that policy can be used in ways that promote nonviolence in our communities. How is systemic racism itself a form of violence? Mm. So I'd like to think of systemic racism as the fraternal twin of structural violence, both being the misbegotten children of injustice. And what we mean by that is systemic racism precipitates a variety of evils that literally render violence on the souls, the spirits, the bodies of families, children, citizens, residents of a community. How so? So where we limit opportunities and define opportunities based upon race, based upon ethnicity, there are violent consequences. So, for example, if we define membership in a gang as a mark of criminality, and where we segregate people in communities with limited employment opportunities, limited housing opportunities, where there are gangs, and where gangs force children to join them. So it's not a matter of their free will and their moral agency, but where literally children are compelled to join gangs, and because they join gangs, they take on tattoos, they take on the markers and the signs and signals, if you will, of ganghood, and as such, they are marked as criminals and treated as such and put on an express conveyor belt from the dysfunctional schools into the juvenile justice system and the adult criminal justice system. The point being here is that systemic racism facilitates structural violence and structural violence facilitates systemic racism, both of which are expressions of injustice. And so systemic racism and structural violence are fraternal twins, both of which are the misbegotten children of injustice. When you were a trial attorney, I know that you fought cases around housing as they relate to racism. And I wondered if you could give me an example, maybe drawn from housing to start out with, of a kind of policy or practice that is structurally violent and racist. Sure, sure. Now, this wasn't a case I worked on, but I wanted to give you a couple of examples. I started off my career at the United States Justice Department as a civil prosecutor prosecuting cases of civil rights violations under the Fair Housing Act. And the Fair Housing Act bars discrimination based upon race, ethnicity, religion, national origin, familial status, that is to say having children, and gender. A few of my colleagues prosecuted a case in which poor people who, as a consequence of 
being eligible for Section 8 vouchers, eligible for low-income housing, were forced, as a consequence of segregation, forced to rent houses in limited communities, limited neighborhoods. A group of women, because they had very few housing choices, there were no market options for them, they were forced to rent apartments for their children under a landlord who extracted from them sexual favors. And so what that meant was literally rape for rent. So the racial segregation, the ethnic segregation, facilitated sexual exploitation, which of course is a form of gendered violence, a form of the violence of misogyny. The point being here, it's not just that the women were victimized, it's also the children witnessing the victimization of their mothers were also victimized violently. It's also that a community in which people felt weak and powerless and a loss of agency and stature and dignity, they too were victimized in a violent way. So this unlocalized, free-floating violence, if you will, that we understand to be structural violence, less visible, but certainly no less physically impactful, psychologically impactful, spiritually impactful. Just one example. I brought a case on behalf of residents near Miami. These were basically African-Americans, Afro-Caribbeans, Latinos, people of color. And they sought to rent apartments in a neighborhood in which there were desirable schools, there were shops and amenities. This apartment building was affordable. But what we found was in this case, that blacks, Latinos, people of color were routinely charged higher rents so that they might not rent in this apartment building. They were routinely told that there were no vacancies when they were, in fact, a surplus of vacancies. And here's what we found. We found that those people, having tried to rent an apartment in a good neighborhood, were forced to stay in bad neighborhoods, in neighborhoods where the schools were not as good, in neighborhoods where the access to jobs were not as plentiful, where the crime rate was higher. So in other words, discrimination forced people to live in cages, if you will, called communities of heightened structural and physical violence. So the point being here is, as a litigator, I came to understand that when we brought a case, it wasn't merely a matter of seeking damages for obvious forms of violence or obvious economic deprivation, but we also looked at the pain and suffering in ways that were less visible that sociologists might call structural violence. And so in practical terms, feebly as we might, we sought to put a price tag on that which was less visible, but no less visceral. Listening to you, part of what I'm really taking in is that when you're vulnerable to one form of violence, you become more vulnerable to all of them. That's right. That's right. And so when you have critical race theorists like Kimberly Crenshaw, who talk about intersectionality, the ways in which race and class and gender and sexual identity and ethnicity 
interact. And they talk about intersectionality with respect to injustice. But if we take that phrase and apply it to flesh and blood human beings, what it means is that oppression bears down on the soul and the body and being of people in multiple ways that are interrelated, right? So women of color may be oppressed and discriminated against based on race, based on ethnicity, based on being mothers, based on their poverty. Men can be discriminated against based on disability or race or ethnicity. So sometimes it's hard to tell which way in which a person is being oppressed. But here's what I noticed as a civil rights lawyer and as a somewhat morally observant human being is that collective sense of vulnerability cannot be compartmentalized. When you feel vulnerable and powerless, you don't sort for race and ethnicity necessarily. You simply feel as a human being that you're not being recognized as a human being and that you're vulnerable as a human being. And so if we think about the words of the Declaration of Independence, which speak to, you know, all men are created and equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, this is a notion of dignity giving rise to rights. And when you take away people's dignity, they're both rightless, and, but they also feel selfless and personless and humanity-less. If we go from the Declaration of Independence to the Hebrew Scriptures, which define and lift up this notion of the Imago Dei, the notion that people are created in the image of God and as such have innate dignity. And so the point being here is when you take away people's dignity, you expose their vulnerability. And so sometimes that's recognized as a matter of law. Many times it's not recognized as a matter of law and certainly not recognized as a matter of morality and ethics. But it's real. What I found as a civil rights lawyer is people complain more about the deprivation of dignity than they ever complain about the deprivation of money or housing or the job. It's the sense that you should be treated right, you're not being treated right, and the wrongness being visited upon you discounts who you are. So the vulnerabilities are often interrelated, seldom compartmentalized, and they come to bear on people as people. Speaking as a psychiatrist, I observe the same thing, that the injury to the sense of self, Mm -hmm. which is in many ways a psychological experience, Mm -hmm. is fundamentally the least tolerable, Mm -hmm. the most unbearable. But I never heard the way you just, I love that, the way you tied it into dignity as the basis for rights. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, Thank no, you. it's, it's um, listening to people I've represented over the years, both in the litigation context, but also as an advocate, as a civil rights activist, hearing people say, I want to be treated as a human being. And so this notion of respect is critically important. And so when you see a police officer, for example, roll up on somebody in a car and decline to call them sir or ma'am or citizen or person and curse them, I've certainly had that happen to me. And it's just, it's offensive. And so the point being is the dignity tax that people pay on the regular, 
is the thing that they find quite often most offensive and the least forgivable. That expression, dignity tax, tell me more what that means. It's this opening up of vulnerability and invasion of one's vulnerability. And what that means is where one person has power over another. And they use that to run roughshod over your sense of who you are. It's a dignity tax. They're extracting from you something for which you're ill-equipped and should not have to pay. So in New York City, where we had hundreds of thousands of arrests over many years, where the majority of people under the stop and frisk policy did not have contraband, didn't have drugs, didn't have weapons, but was simply stopped for being black, brown, male, and innocent. And I would argue that at least as much as the constitutional invasion, the intrusion upon a person's constitutional rights, was the dignity tax extracted, right? So in other words, if you're white and an investment banker on a Wall Street, you don't have to have someone physically put their hands upon your body. Or as I said to my students somewhat unpoetically, having a stranger jangle your testicles in search of contraband or weapon, that's just not something anybody should endure. Yes. Mm. <laughs> that was just like, damn. Okay. The impact of violence on children is so powerful because it's formative. Mm. What are some of the ways in which structural violence and systemic racism impact children of color growing up in this country? Mm. Mm. So where we have 2.3 million Americans behind bars, including a million fathers behind bars, where we, as a consequence of our criminal justice or criminal injustice policies, over the course of this era of mass incarceration, where we literally criminalize a generation. So if you have a million fathers behind bars, there's a certain familial disruption, which means that they are exposed to and vulnerable to all manner of social ills. Systemic racism, particularly in the context of our criminal justice system, has all of these I would call them structurally violent byproducts, right? So in other words, we vacuum extract fathers out of the home, a million. And that has a tremendous impact on children in terms of their emotional well-being, in terms of their sense of safety and security. And so this has real-world consequences in terms of what I call the brutally efficient school-to-prison pipeline, where we see from preschool through elementary school, junior high school, high school, the juvenile justice system, and ultimately the adult justice system, the ways in which the disruption of the family has an impact. So we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline all the time, but I think for many people, they don't even really know what that means. Could you just almost like make a list of all the ways that we create that pipeline? Sure. So beginning in preschool, children are subject to different levels of discipline, not based on misconduct, not based on criminogenic children, but based on perceptions of criminality and based on perceptions of 
which children are better behaved. And so one of the things that elementary school teachers will talk about is the children who are most likely to be disciplined in hard and harsh and unforgiving ways are children who suffer from the three B's, being big, being a boy, and being black, right? So in other words, if we assume that most children are children, which is to say they're not inclined to do everything adults tell them exactly the way adults tell them because they are, in fact, children. Neuroscientists will tell you that prior to the early 20s, most of us have problems with impulse control. That's just the nature of our humanity. But when we try to force children to be adults based upon our assumptions Children are literally criminalized. And what does that mean? What it means is that in elementary school, you see certain children subject to higher rates of out of school suspension. They're kicked out of school and denied an opportunity to get an education. They're more subject to being placed in special education classes, not as a form of educational enrichment or support, but as a form of control and punishment. And so we literally see this at every stage of the educational process so that children who are kicked out of school, because they're kicked out of school, they're less likely to do well in school. And because they're less likely to do well in school, they fall behind in school. And as a consequence, they go from regular school to alternative schools, then into the juvenile justice system, and ultimately into the adult system. And here's what we found as a activists and the CEO of the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, we did a study. And what we found was that black boys in predominantly white school districts were the most likely to be thrown out of schools because of these assumptions about black boys being violent. And it's also true of black girls who are often perceived as being older, being sexualized, and being harder to control. So this isn't a problem with the children. It has everything to do with the mental and racial ghosts and goblins in the adults' heads. So it's almost like we need to send the adults to school about children. It's sort of like if we put any three- or four-year-old next to a container of ice cream, and we insist that they sit next to the container of ice cream and they act like a little adults, or next to some chocolate chip cookies and they act like little adults, and then we decide that some children, because they want to nibble on the ice cream or take a bite of the cookies, are you know prone to criminal activity, when in fact they're just prone to being children. We literally see this in study after study after study, and it has real-world consequences. And what we mean by this is when black girls are kicked out of school, what we find is that they are more likely to be sexually victimized. It puts them on a conveyor belt toward exploitation. The same thing with boys. It puts them on a conveyor belt in terms of a greater likelihood of being exposed to violence or engaging in violence. Those are adult decisions. Those aren't children's actions. Those are adult decisions having an impact on children's lives. And so... There's just so many ways in which this notion of structural violence in children is really a matter of the manufacture of structural violence for children by adults. I mean, these are decisions we make, right? And so, you know, I confess, I think I'm a fairly well-behaved adult. 
what did I do things as a little boy that you know some people would call rebellious or troublesome? Yes, but no more than any other kid. And that's just something we have to come to grips with as a society. So the impact of structural violence on children is particularly insidious because in some ways it may be more invisible and more dangerous because children don't have access to the media the way adults do. They don't have access to the platforms we have. They don't have the voices that we have. And so the people who are most responsible for hearing what they have to say, listening to what they have to say, being entrusted with what they have to say, and protecting them are often the very people who are putting them in situations where the invisible structural forces of violence are being visited upon them, and they're ill-equipped and ill-positioned to cry out in pain. So all of these policies that facilitate the school-to-prison pipeline, the poverty that makes children more vulnerable to a whole variety of social challenges is an adult creation. So if we go back to the 1930s, we go back to the 1940s, we look at the role of federal policy with respect to eliminating the largest group of poor people at that time, namely the elderly. We created Social Security. We took an affirmative legal and policy position that in the main eliminated a broad category of the poor. Fast forward a generation, one of the largest groups of the poor, if not the largest group of the poor, are children. We have not yet responded to that. And so the point being here is there's structural violence being visited upon the most vulnerable as a consequence of adult decisions. Can you explain to me the policies that have led to the wealth gap? Mm, mm, excellent. So let's just take a family and do a time journey, if you will, from the Great Depression to the present moment. And so coming out of the Great Depression, going into World War II, and coming out of the World War II, we had the expansion of the American economy, a growth in manufacturing jobs, the emergence of the U.S., as a military and economic superpower. And of course, the rise of the labor movement. We saw wages go up. Women entered the workforce. Women had jobs. Certainly, there was a great deal of economic disparity in terms of gender. But there was a place for people with skills, with not necessarily having advanced degrees, to have a place at the table. And it was a period, say, from the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, middle-class families could reasonably expect their children to do better than they did. So where we have seen in recent decades, not only deindustrialization in terms of fewer manufacturing jobs, globalization in terms of those jobs going abroad, higher-paying jobs going abroad, but also suburbanization of jobs, which is to say jobs that were in the city going out to the suburbs. So we have working class people making less, earning less, the income disparities growing more and more, and but also the racial disparities growing. And so we find ourselves in this present moment where the economic disparities, the income inequality is as bad as it was in the era of the Great Depression. And in this present moment where we are in the midst of this pandemic 
of COVID-19, which has exposed economic, racial, and ethnic and regional disparities, which is to say the elderly are dying in our nursing homes. Native Americans are dying on the reservation. Certainly black and brown people are dying in both the cities and in the countryside. What we find is poor folk, working class folk, are catching the most hell. Why? Because they're the ones working jobs where you can't work remotely. They're the ones who don't have access to supported isolation. You get COVID-19, you can't necessarily get your unemployment check, you can't necessarily get benefits. The point being here is we find a wide variety of forces coming to bear on regular people, working class people, American families in ways that literally put them in economically precarious position. And so the issue here is not merely a matter of how well people are doing relative to how well they once did. It is also a matter, again, of the structurally violent byproducts, the ways in which people are suffering the consequences of violence that are less visible, right? So in other words, where we have people in mile-long food pantry lines, So there's the issue of the food insecurity, but there's also the issue of the food anxiety, right? There's also the loss of not just dollars in your paycheck, but also dignity with respect to having to ask somebody else for something that you once could get on your own. And so these are the ways in which we are, as a society, not fully appreciating the gravity and the profundity of the moment. Not to mention the risk of getting the virus if you're waiting in a line that long. That's right. I mean, it just puts you at risk on so many levels. That's right. That's right. Okay, so I think I told you I'm working with a group of high school students in the Bronx who are the production advisors for this group. Mm, And I told them all about you and that I was going to get to talk to you today. And I asked them if they had some questions they wanted me to ask. That's great. And they did. (laughs) And they're all like 10th and 11th graders. Mm. And so this is a question from Lucky. (laughs) Tell Lucky I love her name. Yeah, right? How has systemic violence impacted your life? Mm. Mm. How have you coped with it? What part of it still troubles you? And what do you wish you could change? It's a multiple part question. So let's just start with how has systemic violence impacted your life? Mm. So I'll give you an example. When I graduated from law school, I moved to Washington, D.C. as a civil rights lawyer. I moved into a neighborhood in northeast D.C. And so one evening I'm at home and I hear this popping sound. I discovered the next morning that someone was murdered in my backyard. A few weeks later, I discovered a car that was firebombed. It was not unusual to hear gunshots. It was very difficult to get a taxi cab to my neighborhood. That year was extraordinarily stressful because I needed to go to a very demanding civil rights job. I had to prepare for the bar, but I also had to make sure that coming and going from work at all hours of the day and night, I didn't get shot. My experience in D.C. at that time was not particularly unusual or heroic, but it was traumatic. No one, certainly no child, should have to grow up with gunfire as the score to their childhood. 
That should not be the soundtrack to anybody's adolescence. And so that really had an impact on me as a civil rights lawyer from the vantage point of appreciating that violence, certainly systemic violence, gun violence, the psychological and mental and spiritual byproducts of all that, certainly the structural violence, should be morally aberrational. It should be something that we just consider to be unacceptable and that we fight against. So in answer to Lucky's question, I mean, it had a big impact on you know, my view of what a lawyer should be about. It gave me a certain focus, right? So in other words, I've always believed in being a good theoretician. I study moral philosophy in seminary, but that experience gave me a certain groundedness, right? In other words, I've always focused on what works. How do you get things done? How do you help people in real time? In other words, the work is too serious, the consequence is too dire, too profound to engage in play, right? So in other words, be focused, be disciplined, deliver for people. Because if you're talking about you know, helping children in terms of juvenile justice, and you take 10 years to pass a piece of legislation you could have passed in five, you lost a generation. So it's just giving me a certain kind of, you know, some people would call it an intensity. You know, I would call it a certain kind of focus. <laughs> How is it that this kind of violence remains so invisible to white people? Mm. I think it has a lot to do with the immoral efficiency of segregation. There are ways in which segregation is incredibly efficient, not only in terms of dividing us in terms of physical space, but also social experience. To the extent that people literally do not live near one another, their social experiences are very different. You know, my colleagues, as a young lawyer, my white colleagues would just find it unsettling, disturbing, unusual to hear gunfire on a regular basis. But they'd also find it unusual to be detained on a regular basis. They find it unusual to be pulled over by the police on a regular basis. And that having to do with whether you live in a predominantly black neighborhood, but even in a white neighborhood, right? I lived in one of the wealthiest communities in New Jersey because I worked in Newark and would travel out to the suburbs. I think I would stop maybe 15 times in a year, no tickets, just three questions. Why are you out late at night? What do you do? And where are you going? Why am I out late at night? I'm a lawyer and I'm heading home. That's an experience that many white people just don't have. How does this invisibility, this lack of acknowledgement of racism by white people mm. impact both the safety and the mental health of people of color. Mm-hmm. It's like being afflicted with some kind of illness, let's say a virus, and the infected people refuse to acknowledge that they're infecting other people and making them sick. If you imagine a group of folks infected with COVID-19, let's call it the COVID-19 of racism and white privilege, They infect black people on a daily basis, but they refuse to wear masks and refuse to acknowledge people being sick. They're real-world consequences. But I would argue this also impacts, as Dr. King noted, the mental well-being of white people. 
And what I mean by that is the degree to which some white people walk around in a seemingly blissful state of ignorance, a lack of awareness, and sometimes also making presumptions as to their own invulnerability and also a certain racial arrogance. So, for example, we see it with the pandemic. When largely black and brown people in New York City were dying like flies, you had vast swaths of the country assuming this COVID-19 was a matter of the black and brown and urban they, as opposed to the multiracial, multiethnic, multigenerational, multiregional us. So now we have folks in South Carolina, Arizona, Texas, and Georgia filling up the hospitals. And many of them are white. So when black and brown people were suffering from COVID-19, there was this presumption that we're invulnerable to it because we don't see people looking like us. And so now we're seeing people who look like everybody. We've come to the medical and moral conclusion that this is about our collective humanity being imperiled, not they. It's not a matter of the distant they. It's really about the proximate and moral us. It's just an example of the ways in which racism like not only affects the mental health and mental well-being of black people and brown people and people of color, but certainly white people because, I mean, you see it every day. It's a matter of white people on a regular, not all, but many overestimating their invulnerability. Meaning when the economic conditions and the economic forces in American society imperiling black wealth, black economic mobility, all of a sudden catching up to white people and their mobility. And so the point being is someone rather humorously and poetically put it, when you know white people catch a cold, black people catch pneumonia, but still everybody's sick. And that point is sometimes lost on people who are enthralled by their own white privilege. Racism and structural violence are so entrenched in every aspect of American society, as far as I can see. Mm. How do we interrupt this violence in meaningful ways going forward? Mm. Mm. I'll give you a concrete example. When we talk about police brutality, and we know that empirically speaking, 1,000 people a year lose their lives at the hands of the police. We know that that means that young black men are 21 times more likely to lose their lives at the hands of the police than their white counterparts. That the sixth leading cause of death among young black men is police homicide. And that one out of every thousand black men can literally look forward to being killed by the police. We can describe this as a matter of interpersonal violence. Right? We can think about it as a matter of individual interactions between police and civilians gone wrong. Or we can look at it as an expression of structural violence, as an expression of systemic racism. And as a consequence, start looking at the larger forces at work and at play and begin to devise solutions that are bigger than controlling the behavior between individual officers and individual civilians. 
So we begin to look at the culture of policing, the ethical culture of policing. And we begin to hold police officers accountable. We create a culture of accountability, a culture of ethics that has been proven in certain police departments to bring about a drop, a decrease in the amount of interpersonal violence, but also increasing the amount of trust and legitimacy in police departments and in the community. We have to go beyond looking at these interpersonal individual interactions to start looking at larger systemic forces at work and at play in our society if we're going to really go beyond tinkering around the reformist edges as opposed to transformingly bringing about radical change in a way that empowers citizens and literally keeps people safer. So in the same way that we, in large measure, at least for a period, decrease elderly poverty, we could do that with children. And we could do that in a way that prevented children from being subject to these invisible forms of structural violence, these visible forms of violence, certainly the poverty, the violence of poverty. The point being here is there are things we can do. But by taking a structural violence lens, we take on the problem with a certain moral ambition as opposed to a moral timidity and a moral hesitation and reservation. For example, we tried this when it came to crime in the society. We had two choices. We can solve crime by education. We can solve crime by pure incarceration. We chose incarceration such that an African-American high school dropout was virtually assured of going to prison simply by being a dropout as opposed to educating and providing opportunities for people to do for themselves, seek opportunities, realize opportunities for themselves and for their families. You know, structural violence really helps us in thinking about systemic and structural racism, provides us with a sufficiently large challenge to meet the scope and the scale of the problems that we confront as a society, unto which we as Americans are more than capable of addressing. You know, you're focusing in many ways on poverty as a form of structural violence. Is it possible to make a list of maybe the laws, the policies, the structures that keep poverty in place and concentrated among people of color. Is it possible to just make a list of those things that do it? Because I feel like there's so much ignorance, including my own ignorance, about some of those things. I think we blame the victims so profoundly in our culture. I wonder if you could just make a list for me of all the things that make it hard to leave the condition of poverty. If we think of structural violence in terms of the disastrous health consequences of poverty, right? When we segregate communities, not just in terms of housing, but in terms of capital, that means that we create not only ghettos, but food deserts. And where we have food deserts, that means we don't have grocery stores with healthy, life-sustaining nutritional options for poor children. When we segregate housing, segregate capital, segregate financing, we also segregate children in terms of their health. And so one of the ways in which we can address that is by literally desegregating housing, desegregating capital, desegregating financing so that we have grocery stores 
in neighborhoods where children have access to vegetables. They have access to fruit, access to fresh meat. They have access to milk. That's one specific way. Another way in which we can recognize systemic violence is to recognize that crime is you know, not a matter of a collection of criminally disposed uh, individuals who all have the same skin color. When we open up communities in terms of education, specifically, if back in the 1970s, African Americans were actually attending college at a rate as high and in certain instances higher than white Americans as a consequence of plentiful financial aid. When you have more people going to college, more people going to community college, more people going to trade school, you have fewer people in the jails and prisons. That's a policy choice. There's a structural violence to the lack of education, which is to say when people don't have educational opportunities, there are so many ways in which homes are not as safe, not as secure. Home lives are not as safe, not as secure, which is not to say that If you have a PhD in nuclear physics, you won't be subject to structural violence. But it is to say that you're trapped in a community in which everyone or nearly everyone is limited in terms of their access to education. There are structurally violent consequences. And so concretely, we can get away from this model of financing education based upon exorbitant student loans and student debt and go back to a model using our financing of higher education to maximize educational opportunities. Three, when it comes to our children and our schools, one of the things we can do in terms of ensuring that our children are not subject to systemic racism is to open up our schools. And what that means is we have to hold teachers accountable for engaging in disproportionate discriminatory discipline. Four, trying to incarcerate our way to a crime-free society has done nothing but criminalize a large swath of society. We have to use our tools like education. We have to use tools like alternative courts. We have to use tools that divert our children away from adult facilities using group homes instead of secure correctional facilities for juveniles. There are a grocery list, as long as anything you would take the Safeway or Kroger, of policies that work, that are demonstrably true, that are empirically verified, that would dramatically reduce the structural violence in our society, particularly as it relates to systemic racism. So in other words, you do not have to be a graduate of the Harvard Kennedy School. You don't have to go to Princeton or Stanford or Berkeley. You can simply... Take note of the cities, towns, and states which have done things which we know to be true and we know work. What we lack in many instances, quite frankly, is the will and the ability to overlook our racial biases to realize, look, racism is not like the weather. We need not consign ourselves to buying better raincoats and bigger umbrellas. Racism Systemic racism, certainly structural violence, can be addressed and can be solved, certainly by this generation of Americans. That is my honest belief based upon both 
the resources and solutions, policy solutions we have available, but also the agency and the resolve that we have available. You recently published an opinion piece for CNN calling for an American Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission. Tell me about your vision for that and why this moment calls for it. Sure. So if we think about the George Floyd video, if everyone could bring their heart and minds and their moral vision to the moment you first saw that video, I would argue that the George Floyd video was different from many of the police cam videos that we've seen, a cell phone video that we've seen here before. It took place in emotional slow motion, over eight minutes and 46 seconds. And there was a moral intimacy to it in that it drew an entire nation and a globe into a profound act of violence. That catalyzed the movement that we are in the midst of. Now, here's our challenge. Our challenge is that if we want to address police brutality, we have to appreciate the fact that police brutality takes place across 18,000 police departments in this country, in 19,000 municipalities across all 50 states. Now, we can go department by department, homicide by homicide, hashtag by hashtag, to solve this problem over the course of this generation and the next. Or we can address this problem as both a local problem, but also a national problem. To do so, we have to create a sense of moral urgency and a national will. We're not going to address this problem with protests and demonstrations only. We've got to take the protest narratives in the streets, turn them into stories that can be told in the federal legislatures, state legislatures, city halls, town halls, county offices across the country. When you tell those stories, bring forward the data, bring forward the analysis, bring forward the studies, get people organized so that they understand that we're not just telling a story in terms of the beginning, once upon a time, we're also telling a story in terms of this is the happy ending to police brutality. To do that, we need a Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission. There'll be those who say, well, a commission is just another form of delay. A commission is just another way to go slow on a problem that has lasted for generations. I would argue that a commission is a way to accelerate progress. It is a way to create the national will. It is a way to double down on the kinds of transformative changes that need to take place. Because here's what happens. I've been in this movie before as a civil rights leader and lawyer for 25 plus years, having led the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. I've seen massive protests. We've seen the Women's March. We have seen the March for Our Lives. We've seen the climate marches. We've seen the George Floyd marches taking place in the middle of a pandemic. But the question we have to ask ourselves is after the marches, after the moment, after the videotape, then what? We need legislation. We need policy reform. We need best practice reform. We need regulatory reform. The only way to do that is literally to create a sense of urgency, create a sense of momentum so that you do what LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, told the civil rights leaders, force me to act. We have to force Congress to act. We have to force these state legislatures to act in order to advance the end of police brutality 
as we've understood it and endured it over the course of generations. We can do that. We saw it in the civil rights movement when you create a sense of urgency. No two pieces of legislation. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed in 1965 in part because of the sense of urgency and momentum created by not one, but three marches from Selma to Montgomery, one of which led to horrible, widely televised bloodshed visited upon John Lewis, Amelia Boynton, and many others. Second piece of legislation, consider the Fair Housing Act of what? 1968, passed within days of Martin Luther King being assassinated with people in the streets demonstrating, protesting, and yes, rioting. There are moments in our country's history where in order to make things happen, you literally need to tell the story, create a sense of urgency, create a sense of momentum. We can't always protest. We can't be in the street every day, all the time. We need to have the federal government allocate $50 million to help these protesters, help these demonstrators, not only tell their story, but also talk about the legislation, the reforms, and the policy needed to bring about an end to police misconduct. That's why I argue for that. Given the history of this country where there have been grievous injustices, huge protests, all kinds of seeming momentum, and then nothing actually changing, and then it happens again, and then it happens again, what gives you reason to hope that this time it might be different? What gives me hope is not merely the size of the protests. Numerically speaking, among the largest, if not the largest, in history. Geographically speaking, among the largest, if not the largest in history in all 50 states and around the world. That gives me some hope. What gives me more hope is a sense of moral possibility and the agency that you feel and that you sense among protesters and demonstrators around the country and around the world. I teach and tell my students all the time that hope is not empirically demonstrated, it is morally chosen. You choose to be hopeful. You choose to exercise your agency. So when Dr. King said, quoting Reverend Theodore Parker, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. He was not making a statement of inevitability. He was making a statement of co-agency, which is to say when we choose to co-create with the God of the moral universe, we choose to co-create change, co-create social justice, co-create the world that we deserve to have, then we can hope and be confident that we can bring this about. The NAACP, the organization I once led, came into being in 1909. A congressman from near Ferguson, Missouri, named Leonidas Dwyer, in 1918 introduced federal legislation to bring about an end to lynching. In 100 years, 100 plus years, we still not brought federal legislation to the White House for the president's signature. But we, in the main, ended the lynching of the last century. Now we're dealing with a new form of lynching. The point being here is sustained, determined, disciplined focus brings about the kind of justice we as a country, we as a people, deserve. And so, you know, my hope has everything to do 
would not the whims of circumstance or the winds of history, but the backbone, spine, sinew, mind, spirit, visceral grit of the country and the people who've decided enough is enough. This must change. That's my sense of the moment. And if we have a Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission here in the United States, do you envision it going in the same way it did in South Africa with people coming to tell their story and then the perpetrators being granted amnesty if they, you know, tell their story and it gives a chance for people to feel finally acknowledged and heard? Is that the same idea you have or how do you picture it? I see going beyond that. In other words, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission may have been an inspiration but a Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission can go beyond that. Instead of placing the emphasis on truth as a predicate to reconciliation, we can put the emphasis on truth as a predicate to justice with reconciliation. So in other words, we need to hear the stories of systemic racism and police misconduct and police brutality that we might have the kind of accountability that can ensure justice concretely so that we can have a real conversation about qualified immunity. Police officers that abuse their fellow citizens, kill their fellow citizens, assassinate their fellow citizens wearing blue uniforms and gold badges do not deserve legal protection. We can have a real conversation about funding the things that do work when it comes to policing and defunding the things that don't work when it comes to policing. We don't need to be trapped in this notion of because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa of a generation ago was incompletely successful and that being a ceiling on the possibilities of a Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission in the U.S., We don't have to accept that. It was an inspiration in the same way that the famed March on Washington was originally the vision of A. Philip Randolph many years before the March on Washington in which Dr. King described his dream, bearing in mind that that was the third as in three marches on Washington. The point being is we're inspired by the past, but we're not limited by the past. And so this notion of, well, we'll bring misbehaving police officers for a kumbaya moment with aggrieved citizens and we'll walk away reconciled with a sense of closure is not what we're describing. That op-ed describes bringing about transformative change with a real sense of urgency, creating a sense of momentum to get something done for grieving, traumatized, and rightfully enraged communities who are seeking justice. So I just want to be clear about this commission, both in terms of what it's not, and most certainly as to what it is. I think I've asked you the heart of what I really want to ask you. Is there anything more about systemic racism, structural violence, silence, and the lack of acknowledgement and the impact on kids that you really want to make sure we add to this conversation? One thing I would say that's critically important is that we, as a country, have to find a way of re-equipping and reacquiring a sense of moral confidence. 
And what I mean by that is because of social media, we are adept at telling the stories of injustice. We are less adept of telling the stories of injustice vanquished by the forces of justice. And so as a consequence, we are often more outraged than we are hopeful, more skeptical than we are confident. And what we know is this, no grand vision of justice is brought about without a love and an affection and a belief in the agency of the people suffering the injustice. Moses had more than a few quibbles with the Israelites. They were not given to going in the same direction with any spirit of unity. And that the Israelites took 40 years to make a journey that should have taken them only eight days. Moses stuck by his people. Caleb stuck by his people. The leadership stuck by their people, notwithstanding their frustrations. And certainly the God of the moral universe stuck by them as well. We have to stick by each other. We don't need to be in the business of being at one another's throats, particularly when we're on the same side. And so that is really about having a love and affection and a confidence in people, even when they let you down, even when they disappoint you, even when they decide, well, you know what? Egypt is a better place for us to be than Canaan. You still have to press forward. You still have to have confidence and you have to inspire. And the only way to do that is you have to believe in the moral agency of people. You just can't avoid it. I mean, you just can't get around that. You know, we have so many people who believe in their agency. They're confident in their skill set, but they're not necessarily confident in the ability of people to bring about change. And the way you can tell that is how willing are you to lead with people standing beside them as opposed to over them or behind them? So when you were growing up, when you were a boy, what were the forces that influenced you to want to be a lawyer who is working for prophetic justice? Mm Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, I would say the forces that brought me to the law as a tool of prophetic justice have everything to do with ministry and to a lesser degree, the law. So I'm a fourth generation minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, but not as a consequence of really wanting to be a minister at all. I just felt the call to pursue ministry And I felt it in the wake of hearing three questions being asked by a speaker in college. I heard a speaker in an auditorium at Jackson State University of, let's say, 300 students. And the speaker asked three questions. The first question is, how many of you believe in God? This being in the Bible Belt in Mississippi, everyone raised their hand. Then he asked, how many of you read the Bible from cover to cover? No one. Second question, how many of you believe that America is a great country? Well, you know, it's the South, people are fairly patriotic, everyone raised their hand. Then he asked, how many of you have read the Constitution in its entirety? No one. Third question, last question, how many of you believe that Dr. King was a great man? Everyone raised their hand. Then he asked, how many of you have read all of his books? No one. I left the room embarrassed by my own ignorance and determined to rectify it. And so I read the Bible in its entirety, the Constitution in its entirety, and all the works of Dr. King, certainly all of his books. That set me on a path 
of seeking to be a civil rights lawyer as an expression of prophetic ministry. The words of Dr. King awakened within me a call to the ministry that I previously discounted, rejected as a matter of family history because I just didn't want to do what my forebears did. But also awakened within me this idea of being a civil rights lawyer and using civil rights litigation, civil rights activism, and advocacy as an expression of prophetic ministry. So, you know, it's not a particularly notable journey, but, you know, it's a journey I've been on for a little while. I love that, picturing you going back there and reading. That's a lot of reading. <laughs> That's a lot of reading. Not reading. You were not very socially interesting there for a while. <laughs> Sorry, I, I got to read this. That's so great. Wow, to set myself the task of reading all of his books. That's a real challenge. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. This has really been very powerful to talk to you, to listen to you. I so much appreciate it. 